Now this evening, with this little book of Zephaniah, we come to the ninth of the minor prophets. And the position of this book, the position it occupies, its final position in the order of the twelve minor prophets, as we now have it, is very interesting. Because behind us lie the eight minor prophets that cover the whole period of history, more or less, from uh, Joash or Jehoshaphat right down to and including the destruction and exile of Jerusalem in 586. Those eight prophets deal with different aspects um, of the ways of the Lord uh, with his people over that period of history. And before us lie the final three prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, with which, in fact, the Old Testament closes. And they cover the period, the era of recovery, reconstruction, and final preparation for the coming of the Messiah. And so we have behind us eight of the minor prophets, and in front of us the last three of the minor prophets, and in between the preceding eight and the succeeding three, we've got this little book of Zephaniah. And it is very interesting, because in the compass of its three short chapters, this little book gathers up all the essential lessons of the preceding eight. As if the Holy Spirit, in a very short, concise, consistent way, wants finally to leave with us in, as it were, almost a word, the um, lessons of uh, the preceding prophets, the preceding eight. We've got it all here, all the essential lessons of those eight books. We have in the little book of Zephaniah the covenant love of God in Hosea. We have the matchless grace of God in Micah. We have the stern righteousness of God in Amos. We have the fury, the white heat fury of God in the book of Nahum. We have got the great day of the Lord in the book of Joel. We have the compassionate evangelism of the Lord in the book of Jonah. We have the purifying chastening of the Lord in the book of Obadiah. And we have the utter sovereignty of God over his work and his ways as we discover it in the book of Habakkuk. Zephaniah takes all the dominant notes of these eight prophets and he presents it to us, the dominant notes of each prophet in this little book of three chapters. And he does more than that because he reaches out 
to the final and remaining three prophets. He is like a bridge between these eight and the final three. He, as it were, gathers up all the lessons that the Holy Spirit has been seeking to teach us and prepares us for the last great era. It's rather thrilling that we are now coming near to the end of our studies in the Old Testament. We're not so far off now uh, before we conclude um, our studies in this part of the Bible. It's been said that there is no great originality of thought or expression in Zephaniah. But that does not mean that there is no message and that his message is not most important. As you can see, by the very fact that he gathers up so much of the other preceding prophets, uh, in a sense, has given rise to an idea that Zephaniah has nothing original, really, to say. His description, for instance, of the day of the Lord, as we find it in chapter 1 from verse 14, is one of the most awe-inspiring descriptions of that day in Scripture. Now, I'll read it to you in the Revised Standard. The great day of the Lord is near, Near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements, I will bring distress on men, so that they shall walk like the blind, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them. On the day of the wrath of the Lord, in the fire of his jealous wrath, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full, yea, sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. I say that that is amongst the most awe-inspiring descriptions of the great and notable day of the Lord that is coming in the whole of Scripture. And the last portion of the book that we have read earlier, chapter 3 from verse 9 to 20, is amongst the most sublime parts of the Bible. It is no wonder that Zephaniah's last words are so greatly loved by all God's people. I suppose when you all heard that we were going to study the book of Zephaniah, if you know anything about your Bible, you didn't think of any other part of the book. You only thought of the closing verses of this chapter. For many a saint has poured over these verses and found tremendous comfort and help and encouragement in the words of Zephaniah. Surely it is true to say that those last words, that last song of the prophet, are in, are in fact amongst 
the greatest songs of praise and worship in the whole of Scripture. This little book begins with the mighty thunderings and lightnings of God's wrath and fury. It ends with one of the most radiant songs of praise and joy in the, in the Bible, as we have said. It begins with woe, it ends with blessing. It begins with desolation, it ends with restoration. It begins with anger, it ends in love. It begins with rejection, and it ends with forgiveness. It is a remarkable book, because of the way in which it begins and the way in which it ends. As if in the short compass of these three chapters, God has compressed the whole story of the human race, with its fall, and its unhappiness, and its vacuum, its misery, the curse that is upon it, the judgment, the very wrath of God that lies heavily over the whole human race. At the same time, as we see the end of the story, we find it is a story not just of a curse, not just of desolation, of emptiness, of unhappiness. The end of the story is one of great joy, of satisfaction, where there is no more, no more crying, no more pain, no, no more mourning. All these first things have passed away. It's all gone. And instead, we've got the glory of the Lord and the satisfaction of the Lord and the worship of the Lord and the service of the Lord. As if all those things that belong to the first chapters had been forever closed and put away. Oh, this little book in many ways compasses within its few pages the whole of human history. Some may feel that Zephaniah lacks original thought, but where else in Scripture is God's love as remarkably portrayed as in this little book? Oh, I know, of course, that when we take the Song of Songs, we have the most remarkable portrayal of the love of God as a husband for his wife, as a bridegroom for his bride. And if we take the book of Hosea, we have again another remarkable portrayal of the love of God, this time a faithful man for an unfaithful woman, a faithful God for an unfaithful church, and the love of that faithful God, persevering, 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 until finally he's won that faithless church back to his side, back, as it were, into his love again. Oh, a remarkable story. But where in the whole of God's word have we as remarkable a portrayal of the love of God as in this little book of Zephaniah. For here, Zephaniah, young man as he is, soars away like an eagle into the very heavens and gives us a description 
of the love of God, which exceeds almost anything, though short in, uh, in length, exceeds anything anywhere in Scripture. For he tells us the love of God is the, is the love of a father and the love of a mother combined. It is the love of a husband and the love of a wife combined. He is as if it were, he is as it were saying to us that God's love is at the one time strong and firm and the next moment tender and gentle. The love of a man and the love of a woman combined is portrayed here. You see, one moment Zephaniah describes God's love as the love of a mighty warrior for his comrades. Listen to this. The Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who gives victory. He will rejoice over thee with gladness. Here there is the, the a portrayal of a love of a strong, mighty man of war for his comrades, for those that are, as it were, with him in the battle. He gives them victory. He leads them into trial. And the next minute, the portrayal changes and we have the infinite love of a tender mother nursing a little child. We find here in the next, it says, he will be silent in his love. And there's been great difficulty over translating this Hebrew word. He will be silent in his love. He will be He will rest in his love. He will be silent in his love. The thought of one solo of a mother so satisfied in the child that she's nursing that she just becomes quiet and silent in the deep bond that lies between her and her child. And then suddenly starts into singing. He will sing over thee. It goes on. Campbell Morgan said this was one of the most remarkable pictures we have in Scripture of the love of God, that it should be portrayed as the love of a woman for the child that she is, that she is born and that she is nursing. One moment silent, one moment crooning, as it were, over it, singing tenderly in her love over her child. I say, if, I, if Zephaniah lacks an original thought, where else in Scripture have we got such a portrayal of the love of God? It is as we begin to understand this that we shall begin to understand Zephaniah's contribution in the unfolding revelation that we have in the Word of God. In style, Zephaniah is forcible, strong, and to the point. In parts, he reminds us of Isaiah. Part of the book is in what is called kina meter or rhythm, which is sometimes described as, limp, as limping verse. The, the, the first uh, uh, sentence is three or four bars longer than the second, and uh, it has the sense of a limp. Uh, it's often uh, used, um, particularly in elegies and other things, like a funeral type of uh, march. And often the prophets used it, at least now and again, whenever they were talking about the destruction 
um, or doom that was coming. The whole book is in poetic form. The New Testament quotes the book of Zephaniah a number of times. Now, can we say anything about the authorship and date of this book? The book claims, as you will discover in chapter 1 and verse 1 in the superscription, to be the word of the Lord to Zephaniah. It goes much further than most of the prophets. It gives us the pedigree back four generations of the prophet Zephaniah, through his father Cushi, to Gedaliah, to Amariah, to Hezekiah. In the eyes of many scholars, Zephaniah, for Zephaniah 1, from verse 1 to chapter 3 to verse 8, is so different from the last portion, from in chapter 3, from verse 9 to verse 20, that the book demands at least two authors. Others believe that the book has been greatly revised by subsequent editors, being uh, probably a collection of small and larger uh, fragments of prophecies that were brought together and revised and edited uh, at different points in time. Those who feel that there are at least two authors for the book point to two things. One, they say there is a difference in outlook, in substance, and in theology between the first part of the book up to chapter 3 and verse 8 and the last part of the book uh, from chapter 3 verse 9 to, to the end. They also say that there is a difference of language and vocabulary. Both these points are weak. One, because on the whole, both of them on the whole, because they are subjective, more than objective. The uh, question of the difference of vocabulary and language, um, most scholars feel, seem to feel is quite weak. And the other, all conservative scholars reject because it's on this basis that anything that speaks of restoration, blessing, salvation must of necessity belong to the very end uh, of uh, uh, Judah's history, or in fact, after the exile. Really, there does not seem to be any sufficiently objective evidence for putting aside the authorship of Zephaniah. Then in Zephaniah chapter 1 and verse 1, we are given quite clearly the date of this prophecy. That is, in the reign of Josiah, King Josiah. Approximately, that would be 639 B.C. until 609 B.C. Now, can we be more precise about the date or the dating of this book? Many scholars would place the book before the Great Reformation of 621. This Reformation in 621 is often referred to as the Great Reformation. There was a Reformation, of course, in the days of Hezekiah. Uh, the next Great uh, Reformation was in the days of Josiah. Um, there's always been discussion as to which, in fact, was the greatest Reformation. Scripture says that the, part, the Passover kept in the days of Josiah was the greatest that had ever been kept uh, since almost the beginning. 
So often we refer to the reformation of Josiah's day uh, as the greatest reformation in the history of Judah, in the history of the kingdom of Judah. And most, as I've said, most scholars would place the, the, this book somewhere before 621 BC. That is in more or less in the middle of just King Josiah's reign. And they would do it because of the descriptions in the book of conditions amongst God's people, which they say were wiped out in the Great Reformation. All this talk about Baal and uh, Milcom or Moloch uh, and other gods and the priests and the cult of the priests and much else was stamped out in the days of the great reformation of Josiah. Therefore, many scholars uh, say that they feel somehow you must place this date before that reformation. There are a number of clues that, when you look into them, are very unsure indeed. In Zephaniah chapter 2 and verse 13, uh, Zephaniah predicts the destruction of Nineveh. Now, that took place in 612 BC. So that seems to be one positive clue, that the prophecy um, did in fact precede 612 BC. Another little point, uh, which almost goes without saying, is that Josiah died in battle with Pharaoh Necho in 609 BC. And therefore, as it is dated as in the days of Josiah, we must place it before 609, and we must place it before 612. So we can work back a little further from that. Then there is another clue in Zephaniah chapter 1, or a so-called clue, uh, in chapter 1 and verse 8, the little phrase, the king's sons, I will punish the king's sons. Quite a number of scholars have felt that this is an, ex an explicit reference to the sons of Josiah. Josiah's sons were Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. These three men were all his sons, all of them were evil. And uh, therefore, scholars have said, here we have a direct reference by Zephaniah to the evil of the king's sons. Although King Josiah was a good man, none of his sons were good. But we come up against some difficulty because, you see, Josiah was only eight years of age when he came to the throne. He was only 16 when he was converted. He was only, uh, he was only 20, uh, I'm sorry, 16 when he was converted, 20 when the Reformation began, 26 when the Reformation uh, came to its climax in 621. Now, we know for a fact that some kings had sons when they were, before they were 16. But even so, it means that we would have to place this date somewhat late in the life of Josiah to, to, for him to have at least sons old enough to uh, come under this description that they will be punished. Why? For wearing foreign attire. Now we know for a fact that Jehoahaz was pro-Assyrian, Jehoiakim was pro-Egyptian, Zedekiah was nothing. He couldn't be. He was a complete battle, bound hand and foot 
to Nebuchadnezzar. So um, we, we, the point that is made is that these three men are here mentioned already showing signs of being carried away um, by foreign things. They were dressing like a, the Egyptians, dressing like the Assyrians, taken up with the modes and customs of these heathen countries. That's one point. So that would seem to mean that we must uh, somehow, if we've got to date this prophecy before 612 BC, then we've also, we can't date it very much earlier. Then there is another very interesting little clue in Zephaniah 1 and verse 4. And it is the little phrase, the remnant of Baal. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. Now, some scholars say, obviously, therefore, the Reformation had taken place, and there was now only a tiny remnant of the Baal worshippers and idols left. And here we have a clear clue to the fact that this must come late in the reign of Josiah. However, and this is where the clues begin to fall apart, the phrase, the king's sons, may mean the royal family or the royal house. And in fact, in the Septuagint version, which is the oldest translation we have um, of the Old Testament, it is translated the king's house. Ellison feels almost sure that it should be translated the king's house or the royal family. Um, this then could easily refer to the royal family of which Josiah was a very junior member, although king. It would refer to all the sons of Ammon and all the uncles and aunts and so on of Josiah. He was only eight years of age when he came to the throne with no real influence on them. Therefore, this reference of Zephaniah to the royal house or the royal family could well uh, mean them. Secondly, this phrase, remnant of Baal, um, can be as easily translated um, Baal worship to the last vestige. In other words, I will cut off Baal worship to the last vestige. Again, Professor Ellison feels sure that, that, it, that that's what it means. The Septuagint version translated, translated, I will cut off the names of Baal. You see? So you can understand our difficulties in trying to be at all dogmatic or precise about the dating of this book. The very clues that, we, that, that seem to be there superficially, when investigated, in fact begin to crumble. On the whole, the general tenor of the book favours a date early in Josiah's reign. Um, we can say quite dogmatically that it is somewhere between 639 and 609 BC. But the general atmosphere and tenor of the book favours an early date, at least before 621 BC, probably around 627 BC or just before that. 627 B.C. was the year that marked the beginning of the Great Reformation. It began in a small way, Josiah leading it in the country districts, destroying and desecrating the high places. Then it came back into Jerusalem, reached its great climax with the repair and reopening of the temple. 
The text has suffered somewhat in transmission. There are words that are obscure. Now, can we say anything about the background of Zephaniah? I'm sorry this evening if we're um, dwelling more on the technical side, but um, we have to really go through all this before we can really start to draw out some of the lessons of this book. What can we say about the background of the prophet? Zephaniah means the Lord has guarded or the Lord has protected or the Lord has, uh, has hidden. And it has been thought because of this name that it refers to some wonderful deliverance that was afforded to his parents in the reign of the evil king of Manasseh who, it is said in scripture, shed innocent blood until the whole of Jerusalem was filled with it. Tradition, Jewish tradition, the Talmud tells us that, of course, Manasseh was responsible for the sawing in two of the old white-haired Isaiah. Whether that's true or not, we don't know. Some believe that, of course, the reference in Hebrews 11 to being sawn asunder is a definite um, reference to one of the prophets. He was supposed to fled into a tree where he was trapped and where finally Manasseh ordered that it should be sawn in two and the prophet was martyred. But what we do know about Manasseh is this, that it is true that he murdered and massacred the faithful wherever he could lay his hands upon them. And it may well be that the parents of, um, uh, of Zephaniah had some wonderful experience of the deliverance of the Lord so that they called their son, the Lord has hidden or the Lord has protected. There are three others who bear this name in the Old Testament. It is more than probable that Zephaniah was the first prophet to appear on the scene for some generations except for the prophet Nahum. As far as we know, Nahum, at least in scripture, had no other ministry than a ministry to the outside world. Zephaniah was the first since Micah who had a message from the Lord for God's people. A time of silence had elapsed from the good days of King Hezekiah and the probable death of both Micah and Isaiah. Uh, through Manasseh and Ammon, there seemed to be a silence until finally onto the scene steps the prophet Zephaniah. From Zephaniah chapter 1 and verse 1, many scholars believe that he was the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah himself. You will notice that he is the only prophet um, the only other one is um, Zechariah, who is we're given a little bit of a pedigree, but not much. He is the only prophet who is given a real pedigree. He goes back four generations. And because of that, it is generally thought that even if it is not King Hezekiah to whom he is being traced, the, um, the giving of the, of the pedigree must denote noble birth. Now, this is a clue to Zephaniah. It is generally understood uh, that Zephaniah is, is of royal blood, that he belonged to the royal family. And I think that it is more than probable uh, the general, logical, rational uh, 
interpretation of this pedigree is that it traces us back to some well-known Hezekiah. There would be no other point in giving a pedigree, taking us back to that name. There's one most remarkable explanation given uh, by some that Cushi is not a Hebrew name, it's uh, an Egyptian name, and it says that no one uh, who is an Egyptian is allowed into the Lord's house. And some have suggested that therefore poor Zephaniah gave back his pedigree three generations just in case anyone tried to make out that he was the son of an Egyptian. I think perhaps that's just a little bit um, too fanciful. It is much more likely that the Hezekiah mentioned here is the King Hezekiah, and that Zephaniah is therefore the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah. Now this is intensely interesting because it means that if Zephaniah was of royal stock, it would give him access to the royal court and to the royal circle and access to the king himself. The king, in fact, was almost the same age uh, as Zephaniah. He might have been a little younger. Whatever it was, only a few years could have possibly um, have uh, been between them. Josiah was the great-grandson of Hezekiah. He uh, uh, Zephaniah would have been the great-great-grandson. Now, this in turn might well be indirect evidence of Zephaniah's instrumentality in Josiah's conversion and his spiritual progress. It has always been one of the great question marks in God's word as to how this young King Josiah came to the Lord surrounded by evil courtiers and uh, an evil atmosphere. Ammon, Manasseh, and Ammon were amongst the most evil kings in the whole of the uh, messianic line. Unbelievably evil. And therefore it is quite remarkable that Josiah should at an early age suddenly find the Lord. Of course we can't put anything beyond the sovereignty of God to apprehend a man or a woman. But nevertheless it does make one wonder if it were, was not Zephaniah who was instrumental in the hands of the Lord in bringing his far-removed cousin to um, God, into a real knowledge of God. Zephaniah was almost certainly a young man. Now, here again is one of the great, interest, very interesting things about this book. We have some books in the Word of God that are written by very old men, and we have other books that are written by very young men. And this book is written by one of the very young men. Daniel, when he first started to prophesy, was only something like 20 years of age. But he lived till he was at least 92. And uh, Moses was, of course, um, over his century when he really started to put down to black and white um, something of what we now have uh, in Deuteronomy and elsewhere. But Zephaniah was undoubtedly a very young man and his ministry was given when he was a young man. Um, we understand this again from the genealogy because, you see, if he was the great-great-grandson of um, Hezekiah, he couldn't have been very old. Josiah was only eight years of age when he came to the throne and he was only the great-grandson. 
Now it is conceivable, and some have worked it out, but I'm not going to go into it all tonight, that if his father was such and such an age, and his father, grandfather was such and such an age when he had his father, and so on and so forth, it would have turned out to be that uh, Josiah, uh, that Hezekiah, uh, sorry, that Zephaniah could um, have been uh, in his late teens or early twenties. What we do know is this, he could not have been older than the twenties. This, again, is remarkable. Um, it's therefore most instructive to note that Josiah comes to the throne at eight years of age. Zephaniah is brought in with his great ministry, which we believe led to the Great Reformation in his teens. And Jeremiah is joined to them. And when Jeremiah is called, he says to the Lord, I'm only a child. So at a time in the history of God's people when everything was at its blackest, God takes three virtually, who are virtually children, and starts one of the greatest movements in the history of Judah. If you want evidence of that, you look at Jeremiah 1, 6, you'll find what Jeremiah said when he was called. And, of course, we have Jewish tradition, which says that Jeremiah was a close colleague in the work of the ministry with um, Zephaniah. And then again, um, one cannot help wondering whether Jeremiah was much the junior to Zephaniah. How much did he learn from him? The, there again, we have questions we'll never get answered till one day we're in glory. But these are questions which will always interest us as to how much these different men learned one from the other. How much did Micah learn from Isaiah? How much did Micah, uh, how much did Isaiah learn from Micah? All of us have a part to play and all of us receive from one another. The whole style of Zephaniah betrays the forcefulness and the zeal of youth. Um, not even to mention it's fire. It is interesting. I remember a dear old saint from whom I learnt much who was always used to say whenever she spoke of Zephaniah, that young man Zephaniah. Always remember that. It came back to me again and again. Whenever I come to the book of Zephaniah, I can hear her words ringing in my ears. Oh, how much that young man Zephaniah means to me. His style betrays his youth. And rightly, you don't put old shoulders on a young body. God, when he takes up a young person, uses the very youthfulness of that person. And here we've got this wonderful example of the Lord raising up someone quite young and using them. Now the background, as we have already mentioned of Zephaniah, was Josiah's reign. And before Josiah, there had been the long, evil reign of Manasseh and Ammon. On the other side of the board, I have placed just a, a little, uh, a little, I've expanded a little the uh, map on the other side. Um, you see, he lived in the reign of Josiah. Josiah's reign began in 639, ended in 609. It had been preceded by the long reign of the most evil king in Judah's history, Manasseh. And um, in that time, Manasseh and Ammon 
had led the nation into the most debasing Baal nature worship. Human sacrifice, astrology, spiritualism, religious prostitution had all been officially introduced. That is from the administration of the country. Uh, introduced and legalized as state religion in the country. The temple was closed for service. There was no more any incense. The, the candlestick was not alight. There was no bread upon the, the, the table of showbread. The golden incense altar, there was no fire within it, all had closed down. In the outer court, the very furniture had been changed about. Manasseh built uh, uh, an idol who he called, whom he called Jehovah's wife. And so all these things, there were instruments on the roof for astrology and so on. Manasseh was not a fool. He's quite modern in some ways. He believed in wedding together all the religious practices of the surrounding nations into one common religion. So he took as basic the worship of the Lord. And to it he added Assyrian astro astrology and spiritualism and uh, other practices from the Philistines, religious pro prostitution and nature worship, and so on and so forth. This was that which characterized the evil reign of Manasseh and Ammon. Ammon was assassinated after only two years on the throne, and Josiah came to the throne aged eight years of age. He was 16 when he began uh, to seek the Lord seriously. He was only 16 years of age. He was only 20 years of age when he began the Great Reformation, starting with the high places and the um, priests of Baal and so on. He gradually destroyed every vestige of it in the whole land. And in 621, when he was only 26 years of age, the Reformation came to its climax when Josiah started upon the temple of God, which for many years, from the very reign of Manasseh, had been closed for worship. He started upon it, you remember the wonderful story in Kings and Chronicles about all the rubbish that had piled up, and how they'd spent day after day, day after day, just carrying out the rubbish that had accumulated in the temple. This was in 621. And as they were repairing the temple, and getting it ready, someone discovered a copy of a book near the altar. This discovery of this book was to be the greatest single factor in this movement of God in Zephaniah's life. It was the book of the law. And we don't know what it consisted of. Was it Deuteronomy only? Was it the first five books of the Bible? We don't know. But you will remember what happened. Josiah asked for someone to read it to him. And I think it was one of the scribes who began to read from the book of the law to Josiah. And as Josiah heard what was written in this book, he rent his robes and wept. He understood why there was such a curse upon the land and the nation. And he sent to the old prophetess Huldah, who was the wife of the high priest, and asked her what he should do. 
what she, what counsel she had to give. And you remember what Hulder said. Hulder said from the Lord that all these curses that are in this book of the law will surely come to pass. But the Lord has seen the tenderness of your heart. And because of that, in your reign, the Lord will bless and will be present. So this book of the law was one of the greatest single uh, discoveries in the history of Judah. As a result of it, because of the reading of it, the festivals were kept again. And it was the first time the Passover had been kept since the days of Hezekiah. And it was called the greatest keeping of the Passover in Jewish history. The whole nation gathered together at Jerusalem for the keeping of that Passover. But I am afraid that when Josiah was only 39 years of age, the hopes of God's people crashed when he went out mistakenly in battle against Pharaoh and was killed. That ended the last great hope of God's people. From that point onward, it was a steady, terrible decline until the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of God's people. Well, now, that's a little bit about the political background and religious background of Zephaniah. It is generally agreed that the young Zephaniah was the instrument God used to bring about this great movement. It's probable, many believe, that he was the one who, when first he spoke about the Lord, it came to the ears of Josiah, who, as a result, found the Lord and began seriously to seek him. And it is believed that it is because of the great ministry of Zephaniah, the fiery and youthful ministry of this prophet, that Josiah began to um, uh, destroy the high places and uh, reform the whole life of the nation. Um, although, in fact, uh, we can say that Zephaniah was undoubtedly a leader in the movement, it is more than probable that he vitally affected every single stage of this reformation. Zephaniah's contemporaries were Jeremiah and possibly Nahum and Habakkuk. Tradition says, as I have already mentioned, that Jeremiah, Zephaniah, and Huldah, a lady, were colleagues in the ministry. It's very interesting. Um, it is also another very interesting fact that um, the faithfulness of Zephaniah and Jeremiah uh, cannot be compared. Both are obviously faithful to the law, and yet to one is granted popular success, as the world would deem it, and to the other absolute and utter rejection and derision. Isn't that interesting? One never saw any real success at all uh, from what the world, the world's standpoint. The other did. There was, in fact, a very godly band of men and women, small but influential, around Josiah. We have a whole list of them in Kings and Chronicles. We have Shaphan, Ahikam, Akbor, Shalom, Hilkiah, Hulda, Jeremiah, as well as Zephaniah, and it's possible that Habakkuk and Nahum, though not mentioned, were also associated. This was this little godly nucleus at the heart of this great movement of the Spirit of God. On the international scene, world power was moving from uh, Nineveh to Babylon, 
And um, because of that, Assyrian power was very weak here. The great changeover had come from Nineveh to Babylon. And the great Assyrian Empire was passing away to give place to the great Babylonian Empire. And in the intermediate state, the power of Assyria was very weak. And so Josiah, in the sovereignty of God, was left to himself and was free to, uh, uh, to lead such a reformation. Another very interesting thing, although we have only one very ancient historian who is not always very creditable or um, sound, Herodotus, to go by, we are told that the Scythians, who were a very fierce band of people that lived up in the Caucasus Mountains, they were known as barbarians, uh, even referred to in the New Testament as the barbarians, Syrians, and then Paul actually mentions them as one of the things that are not um, uh, they, according to Herodotus, swept down upon Nineveh and attacked it, and then they moved right the way down here to Egypt, and they destroyed the Philistines, or sought to, as they went through, but they did not touch God's people. And it was this terrible onrush of barbarian hordes that put fear into the hearts of men and women all over Western Asia. And it is generally thought that it's possible that it was this, the news and uh, the fear of these barbarian hordes that prepared um, the little kingdom of Judah for the ministry of Zephaniah and the, ref the reforms of Josiah. Well, it seems reasonably clear, we might just add, that Zephaniah lived in Jerusalem. You will notice in his prophecies that he mentions in verse 4, I will cut off from this place. And also later on in the book, especially in some parts of it in that chapter 1 and elsewhere, he shows very great familiarity with the layout and the quarters of the city. So much so that many believe that he must have been uh, an inhabitant uh, of Jerusalem. We do not know how long Zephaniah lived. We know that Jeremiah, who was contemporary, lived right through into uh, the destruction of Jerusalem and beyond. But we do not know how long Zephaniah lived. But this was the, the background against which he ministered. Well, now this evening we've covered rather a lot of the more technical uh, background material and material to do with the authorship and date of this book. I'm not going to spend very uh, much time tonight on the key um, or the outline. I'm going to leave that uh, till next week. But I am going to just say a little. You see, what we have discovered in this little book of Zephaniah is that the, all the dominant notes of the preceding eight prophets have been gathered up. We can find all the lessons in those books presented to us in the most marvellous way in this little book of Zephaniah. But Zephaniah, in gathering up all 
that they have set ha also adds something essentially new in one way. And this constitutes his message. Now next week we shall be going over the key again. So what I'm going to say this evening is just um, for my heart um, about the key to the book. This little book speaks an awful lot about the day of the Lord. Seven times in its three chapters, we have the day of the Lord mentioned, more than even in the little book of Joel, which deals with the great day of the Lord. We also have reference to that day made in this book another 11 times. So it is quite clear that the day of the Lord is very, very important in the ministry and understanding of Zephaniah. He goes beyond, his description of the day of the Lord goes beyond anything so far that we have um, had because he speaks of the day of the Lord not just as a local devastation and desolation but as the complete and total destruction of all life in the whole universe. No other prophet goes as far in his description of the day of the Lord. The Lord says he will consume not only mankind off the face of the ground, but bird and animal and fish in the water. In his total destruction of all life, as being bound up with this day of the Lord, Zephaniah strikes a new note. He also strikes a new note in its suddenness. For he tells us that it's going to happen suddenly and without warning. All of a sudden, the whole thing will happen. And this is a theme that is taken up by the New Testament prophets, by Peter, and later by John in the book of Revelation, that suddenly the Lord is going to come. Even Paul speaks of that that it's going to be sudden, sudden, complete, total, final. This is part of Zephaniah's description of that day. But it is, the phrase, the day of the Lord, is not the key to the book. Then again, Zephaniah speaks of the anger and the wrath of the Lord. He speaks of it, again, very much as Nahum does. And he adds, he links the day of the Lord to the wrath of the Lord, and he combines it together like this, the day of the wrath of God. This is a new title for that day. The day of the wrath of God. But we still hadn't got the key. We still hadn't got the key. Then again, and this is most instructive, there's another little phrase in this book that occurs not once but a number of times, the Lord in the midst. The Lord in the midst. Now you're getting nearer the key. The Lord in the midst. In chapter 3 and verse 5, when he's talking about the judgment of God's people, he ties it all down to the Lord in the midst. And he he really virtually says to us that it, it is because the Lord is in the midst that Jerusalem is going to be judged. Now this is most important 
because here begins one of the great themes of the rest of Scripture. You see, Zephaniah is telling us that the judgment of the nations is from Zion. God rules and judges the unsaved nations from Zion. And this you will find everywhere. Turn to Psalm 110. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand. And what does it go? From Zion, the rod of thy strength shall go forth from Zion. Thou shalt judge the peoples. From Zion. Go over to the great book of Revelation. And what do you find? What do you find in the book of Revelation? You find the Lord in the midst of the church. That's the opening notes of that great book. And then you go on, you see the Lamb in the midst of the throne and round him 24 elders. And then the, the, the multitude, the redeemed creation, the angels and the redeemed creation. And then go on and you find that all the woes and all the vials and all the seals and all the judgments of God bound up with them all come from the Lord in the midst of his people. Doesn't matter where you turn, from the Lord in the midst of his people. And when you come to one chapter, I'm not quite sure, but I think it's the 15th chapter, you come to the, the focal point of it all, it says, suddenly in the tabernacle of the testimony, there was opened a door. And from that point, the destruction of Babylon is ensured. The next few chapters just show you the whole city going up in smoke. Where is the Lord? In the tabernacle. It's in Zion, or in the church, if you like. From there, he's ruling. And Paul takes it all up when he says to us, do you not that you will judge the world. In other words, it is in the church and through the church that God is judging. And in this little prophecy you will discover that all these nations, it is their attitude to God's people, to God and to God's people, to his being in the midst of his people, that is the rule by which they are judged. Then go on and go on to his this praise the Lord in the midst and you discover that the Lord is judging his own. And here you come up against something which is very serious for all of us. Just because the Lord is in the midst, it can mean judgment. In 1 Peter chapter 4, and verse 17, I think it is, it says, for judgment must begin at the house of God. And Peter says, if it begin with us, where then shall the ungodly be? Where then shall they be? Judgment begins at the house of God. You get this again in Revelation 1, 2 and 3. You have the church and in the midst the Lord. And what is the Lord doing? Is he just patting them all on the back, saying, well done, well done. I'm going to overlook everything. Oh no, there's not a thing that escapes the Lord I, uh, Lord's eyes. Just because he's in the midst, just because he's in the midst, nothing is bypassed. Nothing is overlooked. Everything comes under the search of those eyes of fire. No wonder Paul says about the Lord's table that we should be careful, that we are not eating and drinking judgment to ourselves not discerning the body. Now what 
does, what does that mean? It doesn't just mean not discerning the doctrine of the church. And it doesn't mean not discerning the organization. And it doesn't mean not discerning the people who are the members. No, it means this. Not discern that the Lord is in the midst. That's it. Not discern that the Lord is in the midst. For that cause, there can be weakness, sickness, death. Zephaniah shows us only too clear that because the Lord is in the midst, nothing is overlooked. Now let us be clear, just in case someone goes away and becomes depressed and unhappy, it is anything that's unconfessed that must be judged. 1 Corinthians 11 shows us only too clearly that if we judge ourselves, the Lord will not judge. But if we do not judge ourselves, we will force him because he's in the midst to judge us. He will deal, not because he wants to, to eradicate us, and that's just what Zephaniah says. No, he will judge us because he wants to save us. Do you remember where Paul said in one place, I've handed him over to Satan for the destruction of the body that the Spirit may be saved in the day of Jesus Christ. What a thought. But you see, really, the judgments of God upon his own are always with one objective in view, that they may be saved from being judged with the world. When God finally arises to judge this world, it will be an utter end that he will make. But if you and I know anything of God's judgments, anything of God's severity, it is because he wants to preserve us from harm and injury in the end, ultimately. And therefore, do you know that the Lord will even allow us to physically die in order to ensure that our place with him position, the value of our life is preserved. It's a serious thing, but it's absolutely true. And the law being in the midst is not only just a question of judgment. No, Zephaniah, and this is where, because we all love it, this is the part we love of Zephaniah, and though he tells us that it is because he's in the midst, he's in the midst, that ensures our, our preservation final joy and satisfaction. The Lord in the midst is the guarantee that you and I are going to get through. The guarantee that one day we're going to be there. What a tremendous peal of praise this prophecy ends with. You see, it's, it's God's great desire that you and I should be in him and with him. That's his desire from the beginning. His desire was that he should have uh, a home in which he might live. A home not made with bricks and mortar, but a home made with living stones, a family begotten by him. That's God's thought. And you see, when you look through this book, you come right through to at last, you come to the book of Revelation, chapter 21, and what do you find? You find that God has got it. And the Oh, the joy when God finally gets what from before times eternal he set his heart upon. He's got it. And the moment he gets it, sorrow goes, pain goes, death goes, mourning goes. It's all gone. 
Now, are you getting something? Let me put it this way. Only when God gets what he originally intended will you and I be satisfied. So look for satisfaction in anything less or anything other and you will never find it. Only when finally God, as it were, puts his hand upon it and finally gets it will the whole universe come into the joy of the Lord. It says that at the beginning, when God laid the foundations, it says that the sons of God sang with joy. They sang with joy. But it's going to be nothing to what the end is going to be. Nothing. We are given little glimpses of it in trees clapping their hands and the valleys shouting and the hills singing. The whole natural creation bursting into a song of worship. What are the prophets trying to, to teach us? What are they trying to say? They're just saying this. The whole thing's a vacuum at present. The whole thing's been subjected to a cycle of futility. You go out into the garden and you will see something very beautiful, but you know it's subjected to futility. You go out and you see some of the little animals and you will think how wonderfully they're made, but you know they're subjected to futility. Look at your body. What a wonderful and how wonderfully and fearfully we've all been made, and yet it's subjected to futility. Only when the Lord gets what he originally intended to have will the whole thing be be emancipated from this bondage to corruption, to this cycle of futility. And then what? Even scripture doesn't tell us what's going to happen. When all of it is suddenly let out of this awful bondage, what will the end be? What will the end be? It says in the, in, in, in the book that uh, in the book of Revelation, they will sing a new song. And from what I can see, they never stop singing. And some Christians can't understand that. How can they go on and on and on and on? But you just wait. When you and I are there, we'll never stop. It will be such a marvel. It will be so wonderful. Have you ever had a little of the satisfaction of the Lord here? Just a little touch. A little touch of glory, as we say. What will it be when we have the glory of God? When that city is filled with the glory of God? When the knowledge of the glory of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea? What will it be? What will it be? You know, the nearer you come to Mother Earth, the nearer you come to two things. One, you come in a sense to a peace. And the other, you come to a deep sense that something is not as it should be. Now one day, one day, that will all end. Death, you know, is an enemy, not a friend. And death is the last great enemy, the Bible says. And one day, this thing we call death, which has woven itself into every single part of life, is going to be banished. When is it going to be banished? When the Lord finally gets what he wants. When we, children of God, when this, this, it waits upon the, this glory of the sons of God, our coming to glory, our being glorified. 
And this is where really the prophet Zephaniah leads us to. He's really simply saying to you and to me, do you know what you were made for? For God. You were made for the Lord to be in your midst. You were made for God. And God is going to judge and destroy everything in which he cannot be. And he will judge every single thing in you and me that is a contradiction to his being in us. He won't leave us. He'll judge us. Now isn't that grace? Wouldn't it be a fearful thing if the Lord said when he saw something wrong in you, I'm leaving you? No. He won't leave you. He stays. He stays, but he judges you. You can't have him and not have the judgment. He stays and he chastens. He stays and he calls. He stays and he judges. But in the end, the wonder of it is, he'll get you and me through to the place where there's no more judgment, no more correction, no more chastening. There's nothing in us that cannot answer to him. And that day will be a day of unbelievable joy. Even God will be so full that he'll be silent in his love. Now, isn't that wonderful? I must say, when you get to the place where you're silent, you're really very full. You've got to the place where you just can't say another word. If you do, something awful will happen. You'll break down or something. You'll come to the place of silence. And this is the picture of God. He comes here finally to it as if he's filled, may I speak reverently, almost filled with emotion. Filled so much that he's become silent in his love. And then he can't contain it anymore and bursts out into, as this version puts it, loud singing. As on a day of festival. This is God, not you. John the Apostle says that we shall sing a new song. No. It was left to Zephaniah to tell us something far more wonderful. God will sing the song. Nowhere do we find that in John's great revelation. It was left to young Zephaniah to tell us that it won't just be our singing. No, it will be God's singing. Well, do you not think that it must be unbelievable and inconceivable what lies ahead of us? if God himself breaks into song. We haven't really got to the key of the book of Zephaniah because really the key, and you go away and think about it, the key is the jealousy of the Lord. Why is he in the midst? Because he loves us. Why will he judge the, the, the nations? Because they will corrupt us. Some people say, surely the Lord so loves all the unsaved, he will allow them to remain, will he not? No. Not if there's a single chance of the old disease coming back. It's his jealousy. Jealousy is a word we don't like. Because generally speaking, it speaks of something twisted, perverted, and hateful. Poisonous. But the word in scripture means zeal. The earnest, strong desire. And it speaks of God with such a desire for you and me, such a desire for his church, 
such a desire for his bride that he's filled with jealousy. And when he sees anything spoiling you or spoiling me, he's filled with a jealous anger. Oh, some don't understand that. I can see it written in your faces. But tell me, listen, when you make some very, this is not a good illustration, but when you make some very nice sweet cakes and you put them in the larder and suddenly a column of ants appears, what do you do? You destroy the end. Why? Because they're going to spoil something that you very, very earnest desire over. In the garden, there are lettuces. If rabbits appeared, much as we love rabbits, we would have to get rid of them because we desire the lettuces. You see? That's jealousy. That's the jealousy of God. He loves you so much that he will not permit any indifference if he sees you cooling, he'll start to lead you into circumstances in the end which will put you into the fire until you come back to your first love. He will not permit anything to spoil you. If there's an idol in your life, if there's something sharing his place, he's jealous. Why? Not in a poisoned way, no, because it's spoiling him. And he'll root it out in the end even if he puts you into an exile, if he sends you into the place of idolatry, so that you may have a double dose of the thing, he'll kill you, because he's jealous. This is a book of the jealousy of the Lord, and the greatest commentary on the little book of Zephaniah is the Song of Songs, chapter 8, and verse 6 and 7. Jealousy is cruel as the grave, This is the law. It's a flame of fire. This is set me as a seal upon an arm. That's the Lord's love. That's how he loves you. That's how he loves me. That's how he loves above all the church. He lo the Lord Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. He might become the savior of the body. He's got such a jealousy. And so you see, if he sees something spoiling, then he'll deal with it. But the end is not that he wants to make us miserable. It's so that in the end, we can come into the place where we can sing. The, the word of Zephaniah was, Sing, O daughter of Zion. And then the next moment, he says, The Lord is in the midst of thee. Sing, exult, shout aloud. And then he says, The Lord is in the midst of thee. He will rejoice with gladness. He will be silent in his own. He will sing aloud as on a festival. You see? That's the kind of love that God has for you and for me. And I think that we should thank him very much that he should have laid his hand upon us at all. Shall we pray?